Well, good morning again. Um, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be with you. As I mentioned, we've been on the field now for 25 years, and uh, we strongly sense God's leading to be back. So we will be back uh, this summer, heading back to Kenya. Uh, to try to finish this project of the uh, new cardiothoracic center uh, and continue in the work God has given us there. Um, and we covet your prayers for that. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking into the third chapter of John. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on and uh, <laughs> go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll start with the first verse there. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take this scripture this morning and burn it deep into our souls. Let us learn new things about you. Let us learn about this concept of being born again, and may your Holy Spirit instruct us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this passage where Nicodemus comes to Jesus, <clears throat> and it says he comes at night. It's interesting, he comes at night. This is the time when, when Jesus has been doing miracles, has been doing signs and wonders, many of them on the Sabbath day, if you'll recall. And uh, the, the Jewish authorities are not pleased with him. They're looking for ways to trip him up. In fact, they've begun to hatch plans to, to kill him. And Nicodemus is one of the, the Jewish leaders of that time. He's one of the Pharisees. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's a well-respected uh, Jewish leader of those times. But there's some deep yearning within Nicodemus' heart. He wants to know more about this man, Jesus. So he comes to him at night, <clears throat> and he's basically asking him a question in what he says. And his question is, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? We, no one could do what you're doing unless they come from God. 
So please tell me who you are. That's what he's asking. And Jesus, in his usual fashion, doesn't answer the question directly. He, he says, in fact, in reply to his question, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, what does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus did not understand, and it seems that Jesus left him still wondering. A few years back, I heard an NPR radio interview, and the interviewer was interviewing Christians, specifically Christians. It caught my attention because I was surprised that NPR would have Christians on it. Um, but they were interviewing Christians, and the question they were asking them was, are you born again? And in fact, they said, are you, are you one of those born-againer Christians? I was surprised and shocked at the number of Christians who said, no, I'm not one of those born-againer Christians. Now, I think I know what they were saying. They were saying, There's the, what you're asking me is about a particular political bent, a particular group of people who have certain practices and views that are radical and I don't claim to be a part of those. But what they were being asked publicly was, are you born again? Their answer was no. You're hard pressed from John chapter 3 to say, I am a Christian, but I'm not born again. Jesus made it very clear that unless we are born again, we will not see the kingdom of God. So I would like us to try to understand a little better what did Jesus mean by being born again? What does that mean to us today? And to do that, I'd like to look at three different biblical practices and see individually and collectively how they can give us a clearer focus on the meaning of being born again. And these three practices will be the Day of Atonement, Communion, and Baptism. The Day of Atonement, Communion, and Baptism. So let us look at the Day of Atonement. Now this is not a, a, a day that in Christian parlance that we celebrate greatly. Uh, many times the Day of Atonement goes by and we don't even know it went by. It comes after the Jewish New Year in the Jewish calendar. But if you, were, if you are Jewish, it's the most holy day of the year. The most holy day on the Jewish calendar. So you know we have, we have Christmas and Easter Christians, right? You know some of those? Uh, they come on Christmas and Easter. If you're a nominal Jew, you would be a Day of Atonement Jew. You come on the Day of Atonement, you show up at the synagogue, because that's the day you really have to be there. It all comes back to that holy day. And it, it's the place in the Old Testament where once per year, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to atone for his sins and the sins of the people. If you'll recall, in the tabernacle first, and then in the temple, the, there was a holy place that they would enter. And this was where they did routine sacrifices, daily and weekly. Um, you can look into the Old Testament and see this, that, that the Jewish religion of that time, the Israelites, this was a very bloody religion. 
Blood was, was shed on a regular basis for sin. And this was done in the holy place. Once per year, the high priest could go into the holy of holies, where the, symbolically God rested on the Ark of the Covenant. And he would go in there to atone for the sins of the people. Now, atone literally means to blot out. If you have a stain on something, you can put something else on top of it and cover it up. That's what atone means, to, to cover it up, to put it off. And in the Jewish time, this was putting off God's judgment for one more year, one more year, one more year. The high priest would first present the blood of a bull for the atonement of his own sin, and then the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant once per year. And then a whole year would go by before anyone would go in that, that place again. Before doing any of this, the high priest would bathe himself and dress himself in a white robe and wear a white turban. So what is all this symbolism that's going on here? Why did he do this? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the white robes indicated that the high priest himself was a sinner. He had to, he had to ceremonially wash himself and cover himself in a white garment and wear a white turban to show that he was a sinner and he was covering himself before a holy God. And secondly, blood was required to show that the penalty for sin is death. Blood must be shed as the penalty for sin. This was foremost in their minds on the Day of Atonement. And way back in Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant with Noah. And part of that covenant was that blood should never be eaten. Look into Genesis chapter 9. You'll find that there where God makes that clear to Noah. Blood should never be eaten. Um, and in fact, if it was eaten, if somebody consumed blood, they were cast out from the community forever. You couldn't go to your rabbi or your priest and say, by the way, I drank some blood this week. Could you forgive me for that? No, there was no forgiveness. You were out permanently. Why? Because in the Noahic covenant it says the life is in the blood. And as a cardiac surgeon I can tell you I, I, I can uh, empathize with that. When the blood flows out, life flows out. When blood flows in, life flows in. And according to this covenant you could not eat the blood. In Hebrews chapter 9 we read the fulfillment of this, of this covenant, of this day of atonement. So if you have your Bibles, again, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read starting in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They would blot out the sin. But that's different 
than forgiveness. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then just a few verses from verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. The Day of Atonement. It's the day when the high priest offered sacrifices for sins of the people. This day was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who entered the true Holy of Holies, not only as the high priest, but also as the sacrifice that was made once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Now let us look at this second practice of baptism. We'll look briefly at this practice of baptism and how it also sheds some light on the experience of being born again. Baptism, as you know, is a public display of something that privately occurs in our hearts. We publicly share with others that we have experienced salvation or been born again. We do this because the scripture commands us to do it, because Jesus did it, and because it allows us to enter into a Christian community that will encourage us and hold us accountable. John the Baptist first introduced baptism in the scripture, calling people to repentance. Jesus himself came to John to be baptized. And you'll remember John was very hesitant to do this. He said, I can't even untie your sandals. But Jesus persisted and insisted and underwent baptism as a prefiguring of his coming death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 tells us something about uh, baptism. Let me read from Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we go down in the water in baptism, we symbolically die to our old self. The old life goes out and we die. When we are raised from the water, the new life of Christ flows into us and we are a new creation. That is what baptism is all about. And finally, let's look at communion. Communion is the practice which Jesus initiated on the night before his crucifixion in which we ceremonially eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. Now bear in mind the instruction I gave you from Noah back in Genesis chapter 9. 
This was further solidified and made a lasting rule for all generations in Leviticus chapter 17. So that again, anyone who drank blood would be cast out of the community. There was no atonement or forgiveness for this. Why? Because the life was in the blood. So as a Jewish person of Jesus' time, you would understand that. You would know that intuitively. And then we come to Jesus. And you'll recall his words in the Gospel of John when he told his disciples, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life within you. This was a shocking statement. Really, utterly shocking. We, we read over that and we gloss over it. We don't understand that to a Jew of that time, this was absolutely shocking. You're asking me to do something that for, for generations has been against the law. We cannot do that. And in fact, the scripture tells us that when he gave them those words, many who were following him stopped following him and they began again to prepare to put him to death. These words were so shocking. So why did Jesus make such a shocking statement? Was he, was he planning to be this uh, combative with the people? What was Jesus saying? He was saying this. Due to sin, there is no life in you. You are dead. To be truly alive, you must take my life within your life. You must drink my blood figuratively so that the life of Christ flows into us and we are a new creation. In communion, Jesus was telling his followers to regularly remember this by taking the cup and the bread to remember that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross so that life might flow into us. Now, let's try to pull all these three together. The Day of Atonement, Baptism, and Communion. And help us see how they understand, how we can understand what it means to be born again. Poor Nicodemus, here in John chapter 3, was left befuddled and confused when Jesus told him that he must be born again. What did he say? He said, I can't enter in my mother's womb again. He was taking very literally what Jesus had to say. And Jesus said to him, you're the teacher of Israel. You know all about this. You, you are well acquainted with the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice that has to be paid. And you don't understand that. He went on to say to you, the wind blows where it will and you don't know where it comes from, but you can't understand me. Poor Nicodemus. He fully understood this. He knew full well that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just as the blood of the goat and the bull on the Day of Atonement must be poured out, so the old life of tyranny of sin must flow out. The old man must die, and in its place, the blood of Jesus must flow in, for the life is in the blood." Jesus would soon after this introduce communion to remind us all that the life of Jesus must flow into us. And as we die under the water of baptism, so we are raised with the new life of Jesus within us. This is what it means to be born again. And I hope if you're ever asked by NPR, 
If you're born again or not, you'll say, of course I am. I'm a child of Christ. His new life has come into me and given me new life so that I am a born again person. Now you've heard the story of Nicodemus and his experience of being born again. Let me tell you a story about Nicholas. Nicholas is a young man who came to Tenwick Hospital about a year ago. Uh, he was 28 years old. And he had been having some vague chest discomfort for the last several months. Never had it looked into. He's young and healthy. He showed up at a clinic outside of the, outside of the hospital. And at the clinic, he passed out. He lost consciousness. And they brought him to us at the hospital unconscious. And he was in, in serious shock. His blood pressure was very low. His heart rate was very high. And we were wondering what was going on with poor Nicholas. So we did a number of studies on him. We did a chest x-ray, which showed a lot of fluid in his right chest. So we put a tube in there to drain that fluid, and we found it was pure blood. Two and a half liters of blood in his chest. That's a lot of blood to lose from your circulating volume. And it was why he was in shock. We started giving him blood as quickly as we could get blood typed and cross-matched for him. We then did a CT scan on him to try to understand where this blood was coming from. A few years ago, I wouldn't have had a CT to, to, to do this with. We now have a CT scanner. I remember years back when we had one ultrasound at Tenwick. That's all we had. And I thought, we'll never get a CT scanner. Well, now we have a CT. In fact, we're putting a second one in at the new cardiothoracic unit. We did a CT on Nicholas, and it showed what you see in this picture uh, here, an artist's rendition of what Nicholas had. He had an aortic arch aneurysm. So there's the heart at the bottom of the picture in white, and then the aorta, the main blood supply coming out of the heart, and it's going up to where the vessels go up to the head and the upper extremities, and you see it's swollen there. That's an aortic arch aneurysm, and his aneurysm had ruptured, and he was bleeding into his right chest. Now, when we get emergency cases in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, there's a variety of things that they can be. If you get called for this and they tell you it's an aortic arch aneurysm, my heart sinks a little bit because I know that the prognosis is pretty poor that we're going to actually save this person. And I also know if we're going to save him, it's going to mean 12 or 14 hours in the operating room and stabilizing him and in the recovery room, and it's going to be a long, long ordeal. Uh, you need a lot of blood to handle something like this. And you need a big team of people. So we assembled our team and we got him there. You know, these things never show up at eight o'clock in the morning. It's never that way. It's almost always 9 p.m. or 12, 12 midnight that they show up and uh, you've got to assemble the team in the middle of the night and get to work. We assembled our large team together to work on Nicholas. Now, when we do open heart surgery, some of you, I'm sure, in a congregation this size, have had open heart surgery. And your doctor may have explained it to you. We go in, we connect you to a, a machine that takes over your heart and your lungs. So it, it pumps blood and it oxygenates blood. And once we get you going on that, that's the heart-lung bypass machine. Once we get you going on that, we can stop your heart and work on it. 
and then restart it again. Meanwhile, blood is flowing to all of your body, except your heart, which is what we're operating on. Now, when you work on an aortic arch aneurysm, you can't do that because we have to have the, the area open where we're putting the graft in where the blood vessels go to the head. So what we do instead, we go to a situation called total circulatory arrest. And we stop all blood flow to every part of the body for a period of time. Um, the way we're able to achieve that is we cool the patient down. So we go from 37 degrees centigrade, we go down to 18 degrees centigrade, the entire body. So if you took the patient's temperature, it would be 18 degrees centigrade. And then we pack the head in ice, ice around the head actually, uh, to keep the brain as cool as we can keep it. And when we get down to 18 degrees, we've been on the bypass machine, uh, we all set, to go there to cut out this aneurysm and replace it with a graft, we tell them, turn off the pump. And they turn off the machine. And for that period of time, there is no blood flowing to any part of your body. It makes surgery much easier because there's not blood flowing in your way. And we have to work fast. You have about 40 or 45 minutes that you can work there safely uh, and assume there's no damage to the brain during that time, sewing in that graft and sewing in the blood vessels to the head and, and the brain. Uh, it takes a long, long time, and then we slowly rewarm that patient once we get all of our work done, and we come back onto the bypass machine, and eventually we wean off the bypass machine, and their heart should take over and beat. Uh, by the way, I'll never, it never gets old to me when I see the heart start beating again on its own. It's just a miraculous work of God. We don't, in most cases, it don't have to do anything to it. Take off the clamps, let the blood flow in, and it starts beating. It's the way God made it to be. It's an amazing thing. In Nicholas's case, we were able to get him through. We were able to get him off. And here's a picture of Nicholas four weeks post-op. He was... He had no neurologic complaints, no, no deficits, and he was grateful to the Lord. Now, I, I explained to Nicholas, I couldn't explain to him pre-op because he was unconscious. I explained to him post-op what we had done. And he's a bright young man, and he said to me, so let me get this straight. He said, my heart wasn't beating. Said, no, it wasn't. And I wasn't breathing. No, you weren't. There was no blood pressure. No, no blood pressure. And there was no blood flowing anywhere in my body. I said, that's right. He said, so I was dead. I said, yeah, actually, by most criteria, you were dead. We made you dead so that we could work on you. And he said, and then I came back to life. Yes, you did. He said, you know, I was saved. I was born again when I was in high school. And I follow the Lord Jesus as my Savior. He said, but now I've been born again, again. <laughs> I said, you're right. In, in a certain way. We don't like to theologically espouse being born again, again. Uh, it's a once for, for lifetime deal. But Nicholas could say this. Now, you know... What happened to Nicholas was dramatic. And 
we had a whole crew of people and we had blood going and we had machines going and it was truly dramatic and we were grateful to the Lord that he brought this young man through this surgery. Now you might say, when I was born again, it was just me and my mother. I, that's what I would say, me and my mother, I was four years old, kneeling by a bedside. I don't remember any great drama around that time. But the scripture teaches us that a very dramatic thing happens when we are born again. And the angels in heaven celebrate when you are born again because you move from life into death. A death into life. <laughs> and then back, right? <laughs> you move from death into life and the blood of Jesus flows into us. And we are new creations. It's my prayer that if you haven't experienced that being born again, that you will. You will accept the blood of Jesus in place of your sin and let that flow into your life and be a new creation. And if you are born again, that you'll remember the great mystery that has happened. That the blood of Jesus has flowed into you to make you a new creation. Pray with me, will you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your work on the cross of Calvary. Your work which you went into the Holy of Holies as the high priest and as the sacrifice. And you performed once and for all the sacrifice that is needed for our sin so that now our sin is as far as the east is from the west. You love us that much and you've changed our hearts. Remind us that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.